New video of a knife incident at an Nanaimo school. What happened to the youth involved? Spicy debate over public safety. Because the reality is, is that this government's soft on crime policies go beyond the courtroom. We have been taking actions to undo the neglect, the negligence on that side. With violent crime on the rise, the demand for the province to do more to address it. And Kennedy's Stewart's election campaign accused of not paying the bills. Why the former mayor's name appears in a lawsuit. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Tempers flared in the legislature today as crime and safety once again dominated question period. The opposition accuses the provincial government of not dealing with the root cause of the issue, with the NDP pointing the finger of blame right back across the aisle. Richard Zussman explains. Is why we have been taking actions to undo the neglect, the negligence on that side. When Frustration boiling over. Shane was cutting 300 million dollars from mental health services when you sat on this side of the house. A heated back and forth in the BC legislature over safety on our streets. The government blaming BC United for their time in power. BC United accusing the province of being soft on crime. It's your abject failure to deal with the root causes of crime. Your failure to deal with mental health and addictions. Yeah social issues and adding more police to the problem is like putting a band-aid on a cancer. You have to deal with the underlying cause. While crime overall in the province is down, violent crime is up with recent high-profile stabbings and break-ins with weapons. To BC United's attack, this was government's response. You want to say Thank you, Minister. Members. Speaker. The province still working to address challenges with the federal bail system while ensuring the proper number of officers on the streets. While the opposition points to RCMP shortages, where 8% of all positions in the province are unfilled, compared to 4.4% everywhere else. We have funded uh, the largest investment uh, in placing for the provincial police line in the uh, history of this province. Premier E.B. obviously has invested heavily over the next three years to um, unlock or unfreeze positions that have been frozen for probably the last decade in the provincial police service. And the tension from inside the chamber spilling over to outside. When they ask those kinds of questions, you're darn right I'm going to hit back. Enough said on the issue on Tuesday, with no doubt public safety will take center stage at the legislature again tomorrow. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this hot topic. Keith, later this week, the premiers will be meeting with the Association of Police Chiefs. So what can we expect from that meeting? Yeah, my ears are still ringing from attending that question period, Chris. A lot of this one I think we've seen in quite some time. So this has been building for some time. We've seen Mike Farmworth and Attorney General Nikki Sharma go to uh, Ottawa to meet with their federal counterparts. The key issue here, bail reform. Changing the bail system so we don't constantly release chronic, violent, repeat offenders. They're trying to elicit the support of the Association of Police Chiefs. I think obviously they're going to get it. Also want more efforts in tackling some of the gang problems. We caught up with a more calmer Mike Farmworth in the hallway walking us through what they're looking for. 
uh, we are going to be looking at all possible measures uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that are required. Uh, and that's why you know, we're working with the police chiefs. That's why we're working with other premiers. That's why uh, you know, the, the, uh, every single premier of this country uh, and police chiefs are getting together on the, uh, the 21st of April. Hopefully, uh, more measures and more, uh, more ways to, make, uh, to, keep, uh, to deal with the, the challenges that all of us in this country, uh, provincial governments, are facing when it comes to uh, issues of, uh, of crime and public safety. Now, it's a virtual meeting with the premiers, and there's no travel involved or gathered in one city. But look for, the, I think, a common front to emerge here between the premiers and the police chiefs to press Ottawa to be more uh, quicker in, in fixing the system in terms of bail reform. We'll have more on that, obviously, after the meeting on Friday. At the end of the day, they need the federal government's help, right? B.C. Yeah. can only do so exactly. much. Thanks very much, Keith. Well, a 15-year-old has been charged in connection with a frightening incident at an Nanaimo High School on Monday that was all caught on video. Kylie Stanton now with more on a situation that could have ended much differently. That's what the knife what? was. It's the last thing any student, teacher or parent wants to see play out in a school. Okay, you need, you need. A teen dressed all in black brandishing a large knife in the hallway, ready for a fight. Kind of scary. I don't feel as safe coming to school anymore. It happened here at Nanaimo District Secondary Monday morning. The 15-year-old, who was not a student at the school, entered the building carrying the weapon. There was a back and forth with others in the hallway before the situation escalated. Guys, 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 guys. The teacher intervened. Once the teacher got involved, the youth with an alleged with a knife he took off running down the hall. Just go, go! The suspect run. fled and staff run. called 911. While police got to work, the school was put under a hold and secure, locking all doors and instructing students to remain in their classrooms. That was in place for about 15 minutes until we advised them that that individual had been arrested. Back up! While rumors are circulating, police say at this point they don't know the motivation behind the incident. The focus now was helping the community process the experience. We feel uh, every parent's and student's um, pain. I mean, it is their worst nightmare, I, I would have to say, ha having a threat within the school. A lot of kids, they're, they're going to be traumatized by this. They're thinking, what could have happened? How could this have gone sideways? Why did it have to happen? So that's where we're trying to help. We're trying to get those answers to them as much as possible and to ensure them that their safety is paramount to us. A police dog located the knife, believed to be the one used by the suspect, who was released on an undertaking with conditions and turned over to the custody of his parents. He is facing one count of assault with a weapon. A court date is set for July 6th. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Well, there were some tense moments outside Royal Columbian Hospital today following a shooting in New Westminster. This was the scene in the hospital's ER parking lot around noon after two men, one apparently suffering from a wound to the leg, showed up in a taxi. New Westminster police say they also responded to the scene of a shooting in the nearby 700 block of Carnarvon Street. The man's injuries are being described as non-life-threatening. Two suspects have been taken into custody and the major crime unit has now taken over the case. RCMP in North Vancouver are investigating an alleged luring incident. A 16-year-old girl reported she was walking along Tatlow Avenue in the Norgate neighborhood late last month when she says a man in a black BMW pulled her and offered her a ride. When she declined, 
He followed her, repeating the offer. The girl made it home unharmed and then contacted police. RCMP are now looking for a man with what's described as a short, poofy hairdo slicked back. He had a small mustache and possibly a Spanish accent. And so we're now uh, appealing to the public, asking for any information about this driver. And we're also asking for the driver to come forward. Um, these types of incidents are concerning to us and we're, uh, we investigate them thoroughly. Um, we, we don't know what the intentions of this driver was. As always, if you have any information on this case, you're asked to contact North Vancouver RCMP. Well, the B.C. government is making a first-of-its-kind change to legislation to push through a controversial supportive housing project in Kitsilano. As Kamal Karamali reports, the government isn't ruling out using similar legislation for other social housing projects. After months of opposition against a controversial supportive housing project, the province is saying enough is enough and now pushing back. We're in a housing crisis. We simply cannot wait longer and longer to get the critical housing that we need for people in the community. And so uh, that's why we've taken the steps that we've taken today. Doing what it's never done before, using its legislative powers to force through the housing development on land it doesn't own. It's a shock uh, and it's also unprecedented. Uh, what people should hear is the government is removing the voice of the community. Despite a court challenge to try and derail the project. Very concerned, more about the fact of what the government's action is than even the site. The 13-story building near West Broadway and Arbuta Street, approved by council last year, would provide permanent social housing for 129 people. But residents who live nearby are opposed to the height of the building and its location across from a school. This location in particular is located across from 450 school children, across from Delmont Park, a toddler park, right next to Santa Maria House, a women's recovery home. The Kitsilano Coalition filed a legal challenge, arguing not all details of the project were made public. That would cause delays. So the city of Vancouver asked the province to step in, introducing legislative amendments to streamline the housing approval. This is a failed model that's continuously being proposed across the province. Is this the right answer? No, it's not. And today, those voices were silenced yet again. The housing minister fell short of saying if this would be the only time the province steps in with legislative action. Right now we're using it for this piece of uh, important uh, social housing, affordable housing, uh, but we'll have to see that in future. The Kitsilano Coalition is now consulting with its lawyers on next steps, but with this legislative intervention, construction could begin in early 2024. Kamil Karamali, Global News. Former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is once again being accused of not paying his bills from his failed re-election campaign. Grace Key has more. And let's keep Vancouver moving forward together. A civil claim has been filed seeking $59,000 in unpaid bills from Forward Together, former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart's election campaign. According to court documents, Point Blank was hired last year to provide media planning and buying for $84,000. In October, the company attempted to cash four checks on the outstanding amounts, but they all bounced due to insufficient funds. The company and attorney declined to comment. So we rented them some desks, chairs, folding tables. 
This is the second time the campaign has been accused of unpaid bills. Last month, a Burnaby business owner told Global News he was owed more than $2,800 for furniture delivered to Stewart's campaign headquarters last summer. In February, he got an email from campaign manager Neil Moncton offering to make three payments amounting to 10% of the total. Point Blank got a similar proposal with the first payment made. On top of unpaid bills, it appears vendors may have to pay more for legal costs. Under the Local Elections Campaign Financing Act, any loan or debt that remains unpaid for six months after it becomes due converts to a campaign contribution unless the creditor has started legal proceedings to recover it. So it could be seen as a prohibited campaign contribution. There was no answer at Stewart's SFU office where he's an associate professor at the School of Public Policy and director for the Center for Public Policy Research. And no answer at the home of former campaign manager Neil Moncton. Attempts were made to reach out to several people associated with the campaign with no reply. According to Elections BC campaign financing summary, Ford, together with Kennedy Stewart, reported just over $618,000 in income and $1 million in total expenses during the last civic election. Their website appears to still be accepting donations. Grace Key, Global News. An exclusive interview with the Surrey mayor, locked in accusations she told a lie. And the latest from the Miles Gray inquest, a man who died after a violent altercation with officers. The woman who first called police testifies along with the first officer on scene. Those stories next on the News Hour. The rush of off-roading. Overland training, the BC company creating a booming business by helping others drive deep into the wilderness safely. That's later on the news hour. Also tonight, the Penticton senior trying to prove she's still alive. That's still to come on the news hour tonight. Seems pretty straightforward, but it's not. Also, right now, emotions surrounding the future of policing in Surrey are reaching the boiling point with accusations the mayor is misleading citizens and everyone agreeing the situation needs to be resolved once and for all. Janet Brown has more on the continuing conflict over who should police the city of Surrey. The mayor violated her vote or oath to carry out her duties with integrity and must resign from her position as mayor of Surrey effective immediately. At Monday Surrey Council meeting, Safe Surrey Coalition Councillor Doug Elford called on Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke to resign. Okay, um, you're finished? Great. Locke continues okay. to stand by her interpretation of a recent motion by the Metro Vancouver Mayor's Committee. The motion passed unanimously reads that the MVRD board provide the City of Surrey with a letter of support requesting a provincial decision forthwith on the City's request to have the RCMP provide policing services for their City of Surrey. Locke says she interprets the motion to support Surrey keeping the RCMP. That is my interpretation of the motion. The motion voted unanimously. I asked if anybody had anything they wanted to add to it. But if you read the motion, it specifies RCMP in the motion. So it seems like there's a myriad of different opinions of that motion. Delta Mayor George Harvey presented the motion and says Locke is wrong in her interpretation. It was not supporting whether it's Surrey Police Department staying or the RCMP staying. It was getting a resolution quickly. 
Elford remains adamant Locke needs to step down. I rose at the beginning of the meeting and I have uh, demanded that the mayor resign due to the fact that I believe she has misled the public purposefully. The motion goes before the Metro Vancouver board for final consideration later this month. Surrey has already spent millions on a transition to a municipal police force. Locke was elected on a promise to undo that work. Meanwhile, time is running out for the province to make a decision. I'm focused on a very important decision around the Surrey policing situation, and I've indicated that that uh, decision will be uh, coming by the end of the month, which it will. Janet Brown, Global News. Well, for the first time, we're hearing from one of the police officers involved in the death of Miles Gray. He died after a violent confrontation with Vancouver police in August of 2015. And today, the first officer on the scene told a coroner's inquest what she saw, saying she feared for her life. Imadagahi reports. VBD Constable Hardeep Sahota was the first police officer to interact with Miles Gray on the day of his death. She testified Gray's behavior was erratic at first and turned aggressive after a short conversation, testifying, I was very frightened. His level of agitation and frustration had increased. Sahota said Gray had put his hands on the window of her police wagon in an attempt to break or push it down. I was afraid if he got any closer, he would try and strike and grab me. I knew that would be a very dangerous situation for me, and at least three times she repeated, I feared for my life. Sahota called for backup and was one of the seven officers involved in a violent confrontation that followed with Gray in the backyard of a property near the Vancouver-Burnaby border, the same place where Gray would later die. On day two of the coroner's inquest, witnesses explained why they called 911. A woman said Gray had walked up to her outside her home and sprayed her with a garden hose, calling her hot. That woman's son testified he called 911 and followed Gray until police arrived. It was difficult to hear that he wasn't met with compassion and care. It's obvious to see the man. He was in obvious mental distress. He needed care. He needed compassion. And nobody cared about him that day. The inquest also heard police radio recordings from the most critical moments of the confrontation with Gray. At one point, Miles Gray can be heard screaming, causing his sister to break down in the public gallery. I was just listening to the live audio and of my brother being killed, and I was just thinking of him being killed and hearing the screams and the beeping in the background, and it was horrendous. Well, after hearing several people explain Gray's erratic behavior and mental distress in the moments before the police confrontation, the Gray family lawyer asked a witness who called 911 that day if she believed that Gray needed medical help as opposed to police intervention, to which she agreed and also began crying on the witness box. Imadagahi, Global News. Just ahead, changes in Chinatown. I think the feel of Chinatown recently is a lot more calm. What merchants in the historic neighborhood say they're seeing since the nearby decampment began. Plus, I just want my family back home. An Okanagan family separated by a passport snafu. Why his wife and children can't get back from Iran. Fire has destroyed a home in Cloverdale. Crews were called into this two-story home in the 5800 block of 168th Street just before noon. Three residents managed to escape unharmed. 
It took 16 firefighters close to an hour to bring the flames under control. No confirmation yet about what might have caused it. Well, a major promise made by the ABC party during Vancouver's municipal election was to take action to clean up Chinatown. And now, as Kristen Robinson reports, Chinatown's business owners and residents say the situation on the streets is starting to improve. They just need customers to come back. More than six months after Vancouver elected a new mayor who promised to prioritize Chinatown and public safety, there is change in the historic neighborhood. There's a lot less chaos on our streets. Our streets are much cleaner than what they used to be. Overall, Chinatown has been cleaner than it was, but there's still room for improvement. The community seeing the early impact of the ABC Majority Council's $2 million investment in revitalization with a focus on cleaning and sanitation. Our voice has been heard now. And I finally happy to see our tax money is spending on our community now. Work is also underway on Ken Sims' pledge to put a city office in Chinatown, where he and his council can engage with residents and businesses on the ground. The storefront in Chinatown Plaza is getting a modest upgrade, according to the mayor's office, and will be ready in five to six weeks. We know that uh, we're digging out uh, from some really significant issues and years, uh, quite frankly, of underinvestment in Chinatown. Um, and it's going to continue to take some work, but our focus is on that. I'm hopeful, yes. Amid cautious optimism, concerns an arsonist may be targeting the area. The VPD deploying its public safety trailer with surveillance cameras in response to recent crimes including two arsons at the Chinese Cultural Center. These two fires happening so closely together and again to the Chinese Cultural Center. This is a, a neighborhood that's endured so much over the last few years. Um, so we are, you know, pulling out all the stops. The main thing that we're still looking for is, is security. Every time you have a fire in Chinatown or uh, a beating or a killing, then that kind of just kicks it back down a bit. Joey Wong would like to see more police on the streets. Chinatown, he says, will only improve when people start feeling safe. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A family in the Okanagan is sharing a very important travel reminder. Always ensure all your documents for all travelers in your party are up to date. A trip to Iran in early March took an unexpected turn for them. And a month later, the family is still, at least parts of the family, still unable to leave the country because of an expired passport. Global's Jasmine King has more. Rohan Palavin hasn't seen his wife and kids in over a month and isn't sure when he will see them next. I just want my family back home. I have many gifts on my children's beds and we're just waiting for them to come celebrate Easter. His wife Shima traveled to Iran with their children Annie and Artin to visit her mother, as the kids hadn't yet gotten the chance to meet their grandmother. However, the family overlooked a key detail when they were flying out of Kelowna. Their seven-year-old daughter's passport was expired. Upon trying to leave Iran three weeks later, they encountered a Lufthansa employee that right away noticed the passport doesn't match my daughter 
and it was expired by a year. The passport photo is six years old and shows my daughter as an infant. This put the brakes on the family's flight home, unable to leave the country without a valid passport for their daughter. Palavin has been dealing with many moving parts trying to get the documents. Well, it was really scary to hear that my wife is trapped in Iran. Uh, I spent hours on the phone trying to find a solution. I didn't even know where to start as there's no embassy in Iran. Palavin has been in connection with the Canadian embassy in Turkey trying to get an emergency passport expedited but hasn't yet had any luck. A travel expert says cases like these serve as key reminders to double check expiry dates and documents. Your trip could end before it even starts. You may run into a situation where it expires when you're gone and it could cost you a lot of money because of the additional expenses for changing a flight, for extra uh, accommodation nights and all of the other expenses that go with staying beyond just your regular ticket that yeah. you had booked. Palavin says his family does take responsibility but wonders how the error made it through many Canadian airline employees allowing a Canadian citizen to leave the country to a country like Iran where the political environment sometimes isn't very stable seems a huge for oversight. Palavin has spent nearly $15,000 trying to get them home. They have booked a flight for the end of the week, hoping a replacement passport will get to them in time. Jasmine King, Global News. Still to come, staggering new totals in the toxic drug crisis. These deaths are all preventable deaths. How this year is shaping up to be the worst yet. And how a Penticton senior lost her home when she went into hospital and why she still can't get it back. A Penticton senior is speaking out today after she says a lengthy hospital stay resulted in her losing almost everything. Global's Taya Fast shows us how the senior lost her home, her ID, and even access to her bank account, and why getting her life back is no easy task. I don't know. Like, I fear every day I'm going to be out on the street. Penticton senior Rhonda Elliott says her life has been flipped upside down following a lengthy stay at Penticton Regional Hospital. Oh, I thought I'd get out of the hospital. I would go home the next morning and I would recuperate and, and then I, I, I'd my pension check. But I thought the way I figured it was go. At the beginning of February, the 70-year-old went in for surgery. But I was in the hospital for two and a half months. I just wasn't getting better. While in the hospital, Elliot says everyone thought she was dead and her apartment was packed up. Global News contacted the storage company, which confirmed Elliot's items were safely packed away. We also contacted the apartment complex for more information, but we did not receive a response in time for broadcast. When I got out of the hospital, I went to go home. I found I didn't have a home. I was homeless because I was in the, I paid February's rent, but I wasn't there to pay March's rent and I hadn't been around for like that long. They thought I wasn't there anymore. Elliot initially went to the hospital without her purse, which was packed away with the rest of her belongings. Elliot also claims her bank account was closed out and hasn't been able to receive her pension checks. They're just trying to bring me alive again. They said I was deceased, so everything was shut down there. So my life since I, since I got out of the hospital, it's just been hell. I don't know what to do anymore. 
She is currently staying at a hostel after several nights at a motel, but doesn't know what to do from here. And it is a long process trying to get your life back when it's been taken away from you, when they stabbed you to see, and I don't know how they got this idea, you know. Global News did reach out to several government agencies, and while some responded to our inquiries, others did not, and no agency would go on camera. TFS Global News, Penticton. Well, it's been more than seven years since the toxic drug crisis was declared a public health emergency in B.C., but the situation is not improving. No, the latest numbers show more than six people are dying in B.C. every day on average. And as Travis Prasad shows us, the province is on pace to equal or even exceed 2022's record overdose death toll. You know, up until 2010, we were losing 200 people a year to overdose. We're 10 times that amount now. Toxic drugs are killing more British Columbians than ever before. New numbers from the BC Coroner Service paint a grim picture, with 2022 now officially the deadliest year on record with 2,314 fatal overdoses. And 2023 is on pace to beat it. The leading cause of death in British Columbia for people aged 10 to 59 is drug toxicity. And that is just, um, it's almost incomprehensible. Of the 596 lives lost so far this year, 71% of them were people aged 30 to 59, and three quarters of those people were males. The majority of deaths are in Vancouver, Surrey, and Greater Victoria, but it's happening across the province. We are losing people in their condos, in their private residences, in neighborhoods big and small, rural, uh, suburban, urban. The synthetic opioid fentanyl continues to drive the crisis, but street drugs are being laced with deadly substances, including xylazine, an animal tranquilizer not cleared for human use. Sadly, our approach doesn't reflect how quickly the drug supply changes, and it changes so fast that when we actually do come out with an approach, it's already moved into another dimension. In January, the province decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs to try destigmatizing drug use. But the chief coroner says people will continue dying until toxic drugs are replaced with a regulated safe supply. Acknowledging that people use drugs is uh, something that there's, I think, a great reluctance on the part of government to do because it's a shift. Uh, but people do use drugs. BC's mental health and addictions minister says the province is adding more safe supply prescribers every month. We are scaling up drug checking and working across um, as well treatment and recovery and early intervention. We don't know how effective those treatment and recovery services are because there's no evaluation and there's no reporting. A complex crisis needing urgent action as thousands of families grieve and many more fear the worst. Travis Prasad, Global News. Still ahead, taking the road less traveled. We have such a huge variety of terrain here in North America. A class for backcountry off-roaders so they know what they're getting into. Coming up. And coming up in sports, the Canucks team that did make the playoffs and the goalies they'll have to lean on to get wins. All right, just before we get to the forecast, breaking news of a wildfire in the southern interior that's prompted an evacuation alert. The southeast Squish Creek fire is located in Pavilion, about 43 kilometers northwest of Ashcroft. The B.C. Wildfire Service says it's 20 hectares at the moment and it's burning out of control. 
An evacuation alert is in effect for the Pavilion Indian Reserve and anyone living in that area is being asked to prepare to leave at a moment's notice if the fire worsens. Drive BC says a travel advisory is in effect on Highway 99 between Lillooet and Industrial Place because smoke is causing visibility issues. Hard to believe it's dry enough for a wildfire to spark up around here, especially after the day we had yesterday. We'll check in right now with Christy and look at what's to come in the forecast for the remainder of the evening and tomorrow. Christy. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, so, you know, you're exactly right. It's hard to believe that we have the potential for fires in that scenario, but the bulk of that rainfall really was along the south coast area. Uh, the interior regions uh, have not seen as much rainfall. In addition to that, when we look at the last nine months, we really are at a precipitation deficit all across much of B.C. So we've got elevated drought levels in the fine fuels and in the deep soils, and that's why as we head into the spring months, B.C. Wildfire Service is quite concerned because because uh, there is a good chance that we could see an elevated number of uh, wildfires due to that drought. Uh, meanwhile, here, boy, was it cold and it was wet today. We saw a high of only eight degrees at the airport. Typical for this time of year is 14, 15 degrees. We are well below seasonal. And look at the North Shore, hit only six degrees today. Now, we had snowfall in the Campbell River area and even in the afternoon, snowfall in uh, the Port Alberni area. This is Paul Hasem's mom that sent this photo, this video in, by the way. Thanks. Thanks so much, Beth, for sharing that with us. So, yeah, it's very cold. We've got this pool of cold air. So higher elevations is where it's cold, and that's dropping the freezing levels, and we've got moisture moving on shore. So expect the rainfall to be on and off tonight, right through the morning hours tomorrow. Slight potential for wet snow over higher elevations, Port Alberni, Campbell River again. But otherwise, we're looking at spotty conditions. So here's a look at the region uh, for your Wednesday. Nice breaks of blue sky and through the southern interior region. A rain shadow effect for you, but otherwise, showers for the south coast breaks a blue sky by the afternoon so yes i am expecting more blue sky by the afternoon and a drying trend but overall we are going to see unsettled weather through the morning hours here's a look at tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from chilliwack where there was a huge towering cumulus cloud no reports of lightning under this underneath this one but certainly a downpour of rain thanks to ross for that one okay i don't know if it's my eyesight or does that look almost like a ufo maybe it's my eyesight <laughs> Disc Sometimes click. they do look like that. <laughs> it's a disc click cloud. All right, thanks very much, uh, Christy. And here's Squire with a look ahead to what's coming up in sports. Well, I think it's safe to say the Vancouver Canucks have one of the best defensemen in the NHL with Quinn Hughes, and they also have the best defenseman in the AHL in Abbotsford's Christian Willanen. More than anything, I'm just thankful. Uh, I've said it all year long. I'm thankful for this, this team. Willanen today was named the AHL's best defenseman this season. He led all American Hockey League Blue Liners in points. Also coming up, a class for overland enthusiasts, steering them onto the right path into the wilderness. you embarrassing is trending on Twitter right now <laughs> who do you think yeah. we're talking about <laughs> yeah yikes but I know that's not what you're starting with I was just gonna say <laughs> no I'm, I'm in the dark here you'll no, get no, well it's the, Toronto, Toronto right oh Toronto down 6-2 yeah. after two periods yes yeah. Yeah. luckily for them it's a best of seven uh, a team named Canucks 
is in the playoffs. That's true. It's the Abbotsford Canucks, and they'll start their three-game series against Bakersfield tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, and all the games will be in Abbey. And one thing Abbotsford will have going forward in this series is good goaltending. Their goalies have NHL experience from playing with the Vancouver Canucks this season. Goes around the net, out in front, they walk away, it doesn't go as Seelovs dives at the goal line and was just able to hold it out. The Abbotsford Canucks are holding their cards tight to their chest in regards to who starts in goal to open up their playoff series. But you have to think that doubling down on Archer Seelovs getting the call is a good bet. Seelovs voted team MVP by the fans and his numbers back it up. 26 wins, 909 save percentage to go with a stingy 2.44 goals against. Here's Steves with the chance, and Seelofs makes a huge save. I think there's like things uh, for us to prove, right? Uh, like last year didn't go the way we wanted. So I think like everyone made a big step up this year, like as a team, as a, like, as a group. So I think this is like good challenge for us to show we can be better. Seelofs carried the bulk of the mill for Abbotsford in the regular season, appearing in the crease 44 times. He was spelled off by Spencer Martin, who's regained the form that earned him a two-year one-way contract with the big club last season. And that's a good sign, because we all saw Spencer Martin flounder in Vancouver earlier in the NHL season, where his game came apart at the seams when the heavy NHL minutes of filling in for an injured Thatcher Demko eroded his confidence. I feel like I've I've gotten my game under in a more controlled state, and that's been a focus of mine to you know to in, get away from those erratic moments as best I can and, and uh, get to a point where I'm, I feel really poised, and, uh, and that's you know made me feel really confident in that. I mean, they're both big, which is nice. Uh, obviously, Marty may be more comfortable handling the puck. Um, Artie maybe a bit more mobile, but in their Different styles, but we feel that they're both number ones, both really high end in, in this league, which is uh, nice for us to have for sure. And we've had really high level of performances from them since since they both have been here, and uh, that's a credit to them. Jay Janower, Global Sports. Now, they won't just have that goaltending leading them. They'll also have Christian Willannon on the blue line. Today, he was named the best defenseman in the American Hockey League this season, which is the Eddie Shore Award. He was the leading scorer among AHL defensemen with 55 points. 49 of those were assists. Now, here's the interesting thing. He didn't play all that much for Abbotsford this season. He played a lot for the Vancouver Canucks. In fact, after February, he is basically a Vancouver Canuck. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of pride within um, for the accomplishment, but more than anything, I'm just thankful. Uh, I've said it all year long. I'm thankful for this this team, my teammates, the amount of fun we've had, the amount of um, relationships we've built, the um, kind of blessing to just be myself, which uh, I tend to play my best hockey at. So they allowed me to be me, and um, again, my teammates were outstanding, and all of, everything kind of just came together perfectly for me this year. But so last night, both home teams lost their first game in the Western Conference side of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Oilers were stunned in overtime by the L.A. Kings, and the Wild did the same thing to the Dallas Stars. So, can Seattle do that tonight in Colorado? The Kraken are playing their first-ever playoff game in Denver against a team they actually play very well against this season. The Kraken won two of three against Colorado, and the only loss was in a shootout.
Yeah, I think that there's no pressure on us right now. Um, we're playing the defending champs, so um, probably everyone's looking at us as the underdog. And um, I think it's exciting, the, the matchup that we have tonight. Um, we've competed well against them all year, so um, there's no reason why we can't continue that in the first game tonight. Devils Rangers, game one of their Hudson River battle. And it's Vladimir Tarasenko, one nothing for New York. And then Chris Kreider had a couple in this game. This is a deflection, power play goal, and New York wins this pretty easily, 5-1 over Jersey. Now, everybody refers to Nat Bailey Stadium as Nat Bailey Stadium, or the Nat, the shorter version. But its official name actually is longer than that. And its new full name will be Rogers Field at Nat Bailey Stadium. A five-year sponsorship agreement with Rogers was signed with the Canadians in the past. It was Scotiabank Field at Nat Bailey Stadium. Now it's Rogers, which, of course, has naming rights on lots of stadiums and arenas in Canada. And it's still the prettiest little ballpark mm -hmm. in the world. Let's just hope for some more sunshine like there was yeah. in that video. No kidding. All right, okay, thanks, right Gwar. now it's the wettest little ballpark. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Thanks, Guar. Up next, driver's ed for thrill seekers. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Andrea is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. And thanks, Chris. A candlelight vigil is being held at 7 o'clock this evening to remember Ethan Bestfluck one day after a suspect was charged in his death. The event is being held at the location where the 17-year-old was fatally stabbed on a Surrey bus at 100th Avenue and King George Boulevard. And no deal. The federal government in Canada's largest public sector union have failed to reach an agreement. The Public Service Alliance of Canada, which represents 155,000 civil servants, says there will be a strike effective tomorrow beginning at 12.01 Eastern and Canada Revenue Agency employees will walk off the job. Details on all the services impacted, including what this might mean when it comes to filing your taxes. That's ahead coming up tonight at 11. Chris, Sophie. Whatever it is, it's not good. All right. Thanks very much, Jan. Well, the back roads of BC can lead to some spectacular scenery, but for a novice off-roader can also pose a risk. That's where Overland Training Canada comes in. The BC company teaching drivers of all kinds how to safely navigate the rough terrain. Jay Durant takes us on a ride on This Is BC. For anyone who's ever dreamed about tackling the back roads in this country or anywhere else in the world, there's a team that's ready to train you. We really try and focus on giving anyone that we come into contact with tools to enjoy the vehicle that they have in recreation and to be safe and being conscientious to the environment. Chris Walker launched Overland Training Canada in 2015, a natural career choice for a guy who as a kid was exposed to mountaineering, kayaking, climbing, anything the great outdoors had to offer. Walker saw huge potential for a unique service when he moved here 17 years ago. We have such a huge variety of terrain here in North America and to access that terrain as far as I wanted to go we needed a 4x4 and that's kind of where it exploded really and then it just kind of snowballed. But he's training more than just the adventurous type. Forestry, mining and oil and gas companies are turning to Overland to prep their employees for the long haul. They're really looking to reduce the risk of their drivers driving their vehicles so that there's less incidents and there's less damage to infrastructure and the machinery. So really trying to encourage them to 
use these simple skills to come home safely at the end of every day. Some on the recreation side are more than just outdoor enthusiasts. Chris has coached drivers competing in international events and is a trainer for the annual Rebel Rally in the States. That's an all-women's competition, about 50 teams, about 2,000 kilometers of off-road driving over eight days of competition. We're going on an adventure today. With endless terrain and no limits to the thrills, Overland is keeping its customers safe and helping to ensure their expensive rides make it back in one piece. I really think that industry and recreation has now seen the value in spending money on getting trained. So we're just diversifying and getting bigger and bigger as an organization and traveling further afield. Jay Durant, Global News. Pretty cool. If you know someone who has a great story like that to tell or something unique to BC that you'd like to share with all of us, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. I mean, it looks like fun. Bumpy, but fun. But definitely you'd need some training for that, for <laughs> yep. sure. All right, um, Christy, is it ever going to warm up? Yeah, not a, not a lot of fun weather-wise across the south coast. Yeah, today was so cold with highs of only 8 degrees at the airport. 10 expected tomorrow, and that's because although we are expecting the rain to be on and off through the morning hours, we should see some sunshine by the afternoon. We still have a slight chance of showers in the afternoon, but overall brighter and drier for our Wednesday, which will be nice. That does look like a third straight weekend of rain, though, and I'm not happy about it, and I know, I know a lot of <laughs> no. people aren't. We all right. doubt We just got to deal with it. Let's guess, move right? the show to Palm Springs. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in, too. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night, all.